0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter and the thirteenth verse, the thirteenth verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we come this morning in our study of this great epistle of Paul to the Ephesians to this particular statement, which I need scarcely remind you again is part of a, a larger statement, which we are in process of considering the apostle here is dealing with this great question of unity. He has given his mighty doctrine in the first three chapters, and now he is turning to these people and saying, in the light of all these things, there are certain things that you must always remember and always put into practice, and the first thing above everything else is that they must endeavor with all means possible." to keep and to preserve and to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he's been giving them various reasons why this is absolutely essential. In verses 4, 5, and 6, you remember, he points out to them that the very nature of the church herself proves that. And then he goes on from verse 7 onwards to show how everything indeed in the whole organization of the church points to the same end and makes this thing quite inevitable. And we have seen that it comes to this, you remember, that our risen Lord, he who first descended and then ascended, and because of what he did when he did descend, has now earned the right to receive these gifts from God unto his people in the church. And he has showered them upon us, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. But he says, in particular, this can be illustrated by the way in which he he has chosen to uh, ordain certain offices in the church. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And what is his object in all this? Well, he says, the object of all this is for the perfecting of the saints. And this perfecting of the saints is something that is carried out through the work of the ministry. And the work of the ministry is the edifying of the body of Christ, the building up of the body of Christ. And now in this 13th verse, he elaborates that. What is this building up of the body of Christ? Well, he tells us two main things about it. He tells us what the ultimate objective is in doing this, and he also again states in greater detail the way in which this objective is going to be arrived at. Now that is the real message of this thirteenth verse, but we must, as I say, remember the context and remember what in particular the apostle is concerned uh, to press upon our minds at this point. Here they are, then, these apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Now, they, they're not human organizations. It isn't the church that has decided to have these offices. It's he who decides upon the offices, and he chooses the men. And uh, he's got his this grand objective. It's this great unity. It's this reuniting in Christ, as he said in verse 10 of the first chapter, this reuniting, heading up again in Christ of all things, whether they be in heaven or on earth, even in him. And this is seen first and foremost and preeminently in the church. And afterwards it will be seen in the whole of creation. So that nothing is more important for us as nothing was more important for these Ephesian Christians than to take hold of this tremendous picture and conception of the Christian Church which the Apostle is here painting. I am indeed more and more convinced that this is the greatest source of trouble today. It's our failure as Christian people to understand what our Church membership means, the dignity and the privilege. The responsibility of it all. The greatest need is a recapturing of the New Testament picture concerning the church and the New Testament teaching concerning the church. If only we can see ourselves this morning in terms of this picture, we shall realize that we are the most privileged people on earth, that there's nothing comparable to being a Christian and a member of the mystical body of Christ very well, let's try and look at this together. Here it is. These offices have been introduced and the men have been put into them in order that the body might be built up. Now, there are difficulties about this uh, statement as there are about the subsequent statements in verses 15 and 16 in particular. The apostle is back again onto his favorite analogy of the church uh, as the body of Christ, but he's... So concerned about this that he interrupts his own thought, there's the negative that we'll come to, God willing, in verse 14, and then back again he goes to it uh, and almost mixes his metaphors. But nevertheless, I think the main essential picture is perfectly clear. Very well, then, here I say is the ultimate objective, the ultimate objective of these offices and of the work of the Church is that uh, the saints be made perfect. And that is described in this way, until we all come unto or to the unity of the faith, that's one thing, and the second is the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we become absolutely perfect, and to the a perfect men, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, let's look at it like this. Here, I say, is the final objective that we become this perfect men. Or he says, look at it in the other way, if you like, until we attain unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the objective. And the way to the objective is. To bring us to the unity of the faith, to bring us to the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, now let's look at these terms. Until he says we um, become or attain unto a perfect man. We needn't stop with the word perfect, it means mature, it means full grown, means fully developed, means complete. But what does he mean by talking about a perfect man? Now, the danger here surely is uh, to regard it as something that refers to us one by one, singly and individually, as if it were saying, until we all come to be perfect men. Now, while in a sense, as I'm going to show, that is true, that isn't exactly what the apostle is saying here in this particular picture, because as has been pointed out, if that... uh, Well, like that, well then, uh, where do women come in? And indeed, because of that difficulty, there were some of the early fathers who got into great trouble at this point. Uh, So it seems to me that we must be clear about this and realize that the perfect man means the church, with Christ the head and we as members of the body. So the perfect man is Christ and his church. He, I say, as the head and the members making up the different parts of the body. Now the whole together is the perfect man, the church in a perfect condition, the body corresponding to the perfection of the head. Now let me justify what I'm saying. Uh, The apostle uses uh, this term, Uh, concerning our Lord, uh, again in the first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 12 and in verse 12, where we read this, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And Christ there stands for the church, obviously. So also is Christ. As that is true of the body, the natural human body, so also is Christ, by which he means Christ and his church. Christ and the church making up one body. One of the apostles' favorite ideas, of course, in most of his epistles. Very well, then, what he is saying is that we must always think of ourselves in the particular way, that here is the grand purpose and program that the church be perfect Christ as the head, and we as members in particular, of that body. And that will be the final state of the church. And that is the object of providing apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. That's what we are here for. That is the work of the ministry. Nothing else, nothing less. That is the goal which we must always keep in our minds. We are engaged in this great process of forming this perfect man, the head perfect, the body perfect also. And a day is coming when this will be complete, matured, fully grown, fully developed. It's not that yet, but it will be then. That then is the perfect man. And then he puts it in this other way, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, the learned commentator spent a great deal of time in arguing as to whether this should be translated stature or age. It really doesn't make any difference whatsoever uh, to the meaning. The two ideas obviously go together, age and the actual height. You're thinking of the development uh, of a child into adolescence and into manhood. That's his picture at this point. Well, you can talk about it in terms of height, if you like. You can talk about it in terms of age. And it's when he attains a certain age he attains his permanent height and stature, so that it's really quite unimportant. But what is important is that here he does help us to see how this perfection of the body is going to be arrived at. Now, this perfect man consists not only of the head himself Jesus Christ who is always perfect but of us also who form the limbs and the parts and individual portions of the body and therefore what he is saying is this that that perfect men will only have arrived when every single one of us who is a member of the body will have grown up to the full stature and development that God has appointed for us. Now, let's look at this, because this is really important, and it can be misunderstood. That body, I say, that man, the church, is not going to be perfect until every single part and portion of it is perfect. If there's a blemish or a lack of development or an immaturity in any part or portion, you can't say an apple if you like. There may be a wonderful specimen. Look at that apple. Ah, yes, but there's one speck in it. There's just that little bit of decay. It's very small, but it's there. And if you're in a competition, if you're in a horticultural show, you can't give it the prize. Otherwise, it's quite outstanding. There's nothing to touch it. But that just spoils it. It's no longer a perfect specimen. Now, all that is true, perfect men will not have arrived until every single part and portion will be fully developed and absolutely perfect. But this, that doesn't mean that we shall all be absolutely equal and identical. You see, the figure of the body makes that quite impossible, doesn't it? The toe and the finger are different. The finger and fingers and the hand different. All these different parts are different. We're not all meant to be identical and all absolutely the same. No, no, there will be inequalities, some will be great and some will be small. As the apostle says in one Corinthians twelve, some parts will be comely and some will be less comely. There will be all these variations. There will be variations in ability, There'll be variations in function. That, and this is the glory of it, though there are all these variations in size and appearance and in ability and function and all the rest of it, every single one of them will have attained fully unto that which it was meant to be and which it was meant to do. And that is, it seems to me, the central glory of the Christian church. Negatively, we can apply this, cannot we, in this way. We can say that any presentation of the Christian truth that tends to produce a kind of sameness in its people is therefore always wrong and is false. That's the characteristic of the cults always. They reproduce a type, all all of whom are almost identical. You never find variations in the types. They all conform to a pattern. They use the same expressions. They say it in the same way. They're all alike. Now, you never get that in the New Testament. You never get it in this vital work of the Holy Spirit. This whole conception of the body, I say, should have saved us from that. These counterfeits, they're always mechanical. And they show that they are by reproducing exactly like postage stamps. People who are identical in every respect. Oh, the glory of the church I say, lies in this, that in this extraordinary variety and variation, there is not only this unity, but there is this perfection of each of the parts, though they're all so different from one another. In other words, the body isn't going to be perfect until every toe is perfect. If I may so say, until every nail is perfect, until every hair is perfect until every detail is absolutely perfect. It doesn't matter what we are, therefore, in the church, what our office is, what our peculiar calling is, what is this particular grace that is given to every one of us according to the measure of the gift of Christ, or what matters is that every one of us should be perfect in that position. Each one of us is meant to be full and full of his life. Now you see, there isn't the same amount in each, but each is full. So that if you just go to the ocean with a tumbler in your hand, and you dip it in and you say, my tumbler is full, then you bring a great tank and you fill that and the tank is full. There's a great deal of difference in the amount of water, of the water of the sea, in the tumbler and the tank, but both are full and both can be overflowing. That's the kind of thing that we have here. Not identity in amount, but each one enjoying the fullness that is meant for him. In other words, I can put it like this. When the church is complete, when this perfect man will have arrived, Not a single saint will be wanting. All will be safely gathered in. The fullness of the Gentiles, all Israel, shall be saved. Not one saint will be missing everywhere. Known unto God is the number and the completion and the fullness. I don't know it. Nobody else knows it. But God knoweth them that are his. And when the perfect men has arrived, not a single member of the body will be absent or missing, nor will there be a degree of grace wanting in any part or in any portion. The whole body will be full and proportionable and perfect. That's what he's saying. Until we attain unto this perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, There is this stature of Christ, this picture of the church, the body, the head, and the members of the body all together. There is a fullness there. And you see, we can therefore look at it in two ways. There is a sense in which you and I will be parts of that which makes up his fullness. There is a sense in which he is not complete without us. That's a part of his self-abnegation and of his humiliation, that he has subjected himself to this, that he has joined himself, as it were, to this body, and he's now a part of it, he is the head. And therefore I say there is this sense in which he is not complete without us, because this fullness which belongs to him as the head of the body will not be complete until we are all in, until we are all full and perfect. But at the same time, you see, it means this that His fullness is in every one of us, and every one of us is filled with Him. That is why this analogy of the body is such a perfect one. You see, this whole organization of the body, its organic nature, the organic nature of the unity, makes this absolutely vital. The life is in the blood. And the blood courses through every part, the most distal members of my body. All the same blood goes through, and the life is there. The fullness of the head is in the fingers and in the toes. His fullness in us. And because of that, you see, we, being filled, make up his fullness in thinking of him in terms of the head of the body. What a glorious conception. What a way to view ourselves as Christian people. Don't you agree with me that this is the thing that's lacking and is missing today? You see, it's for this reason that so many pastors and preachers have to appeal to their people to come to church on Sunday and to exhort with them and to cajole them to do this and that. What's the matter? Well, they've never seen this. They think they're conferring an honor upon an institution. They have never caught a glimpse of themselves as members of the body of Christ Christ. They haven't got this sense of honor, this sense of privilege. They don't see that in a sense they're going to make up his fullness and that there's no time to waste and that we must purge ourselves of sins and learn and go on in order that we may arrive at this fullness, he filling us and we making up this fullness of his body, which is the church. Oh, let us think more of this perfect man that's coming Let us think more of this attaining unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's not concentrate, I say, upon what we are in the church. Nobody's unimportant in the church. That's where we go wrong, isn't it? And where certain sections of the church even encourage us to go wrong. This distinction between clergy and laity and so on. Oh, in a sense it's all right as regards offices and we mustn't detract from it. The apostle emphasizes offices. But we must never so regard it as to say that I don't matter. I'm an unimportant church member. You are. The body is not perfect. The body is not complete. While you are imperfect or have some imperfection upon you, and the goal is, and the goal which is going to be arrived at, is this perfect man. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh beloved people. Let's think of this. Let's meditate upon it. Haste then on from grace to glory. We have no time to waste I say. He that hath his hope in him. Purifieth himself even as he is pure. All that comes out of all this. Well now there is the ultimate objective. But let me say just something this morning. As to how this objective is to be attained. And the apostle tells us quite plainly. The whole work of the ministry is to bring us to that. This is the upbuilding of the church, the body of Christ. And this again has two aspects. And the two aspects are these. There are two things that we've got to attain unto. The first is the unity of the faith. Let's be clear about this. You notice he says, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, the unity of the faith is also of the Son of God. The grammarians are all agreed about that. That isn't my idea. And so we read, till we all come in the unity of the faith of the Son of God and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Those are the two things then unto which we have to attain. What does this mean? Well, we've got to come unto a unity of the faith concerning the Son of God. And this is the way to attain unto that perfection. How practical the apostle is. Doesn't leave anything to chance. You see, it isn't something uh, which can be regarded as some kind of esoteric or mystical experience. No, no. The way to attain unto this is, first and foremost, that we get this unity of the faith concerning the Son of God. What does the unity mean, says someone? And how do you reconcile that with what he said in verse 5, where he said, one Lord, one faith, one baptism? He says in verse 5, we've already got one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yet here he says, we attain unto the unity of the faith. Is there a contradiction? Well, obviously, there isn't a contradiction at all. When we were looking at verse 5, you remember, we suggested it meant this, that there is an irreducible minimum in this matter of faith, that there is a particular belief which is essential and without which one isn't a Christian. And I venture to suggest that that really meant justification by faith only. That is the heart of the faith. It is the only way If there's any works brought in, it's no longer Christianity. Here then is the faith. Here's the beginning. Here's the first step. That is the one faith that we are justified by faith alone and by nothing else. All right, but you see, that is only the beginning. That is one faith. Ah, but that isn't the whole of it. That is that first step that is absolutely essential, and it is the first step that leads on to this final where our faith will be perfect and entire and full and well and balanced, and there will be nothing lacking and nothing missing in it. While I say that at this moment we must all be clear about that one first thing, and without which there is no Christianity, if we are wrong on that I say we have fallen from grace, In other words, we are not in grace at all and never have been if we are not clear about that. But though we may be perfectly clear about that, there are many aspects of the faith concerning the Son of God about which we are not clear and about which many of us differ. But, my friends, when we attain unto this, we will all be saying the same things and be believing the same things. For we shall then know, we shall see him as he is. It's a perfect faith and an entire faith. So, while we talk about the one faith, we can also talk about attaining unto the unity of the faith of the Son of God. Well, what is this? I don't stay with it this morning. I'm only going to give you certain headings that you may work it out for yourselves, but this is what it means. There must be that unity of faith about his person. You notice how he puts it, until we attain unto the unity of the faith of the Son of God. Later he refers to him as Christ. Ah yes. There must be no doubts or uncertainties at this point. He is the Son of God but he's also man. And the unity of the faith is that which sees both. Some people emphasize only the man in him, and they see nothing but a man in him. That's not the faith. Others, I say, emphasize the God in him and don't seem to be clear about the fact that the incarnation was real and that he didn't take on him a phantom body but that he really did take unto him human nature and was born of the virgin, son of God, man, and holding these things in the right proportions and giving them their relative values. Why, even those of us who believe these things are often guilty of a false emphasis. Some of us overemphasize perhaps his eternal deity, his unique deity, And forget to emphasize, as we should, that he was a man amongst men, truly men, as well as truly God. And others, I say, are guilty of the other emphasis, while really holding the two. The point is that when we really attain unto this unity of the faith, we shall see it all. We shall see it all in proportion. We are pressing on towards that. Then, you see, that involves the whole wonder and the marvel of the Incarnation. And all that led to it. Oh, it's a part of the faith of the Son of God to know that God before time purposed all this and appointed his Son, Heir of all things, gave to him his people, the church, and the Son came accepting it all voluntarily. Oh, it's all a part of this. And you see, the way to attain unto that final perfection is to look into these things and to grasp them and to understand them and to meditate upon them. The Father sending the Son, the Son coming, the plan of redemption, the scheme of salvation, the prophets foretelling it. It's all a part of this faith of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Your Old Testament is essential. The types and the shadows, the more we know about them, the more we shall be growing and maturing. That's the way. And then you think of his offices prophet, priest, king, you must look at his teaching, and you must grapple with it, and you must understand his revelation of the Father. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son that is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And we must go back, therefore, and read those Gospels, and look at this manifestation and at this revelation, and look at his teaching, we neglect it at our peril. We must be living on these things Sermon on the Mount and all his other teaching, the prophet. It's a part of the faith of the Son of God. And then we must look at him as the priest. We must look at him making his offering, the offering of himself. He made his soul an offering. He laid down his body. He gave himself unto death. He submitted as God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. While God smote him with the stripes that you and I so richly deserve. What's happening? Oh, it's the great high priest offering his offering. He offered himself. And then he took his own blood and he presented it in the holiest of all, the priestly work of Christ, Son of God, great high priest that is passed through the heavens. Beloved people, this is the way to mature and to develop. This is the way that we attain eventually unto that perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then think of him in his kingly office. He's already the king of the church. He came to found a kingdom. The church is the present form of the kingdom. But he's coming again. And he'll come again and establish his kingdom in a visible manner. And he will set up that eternal state in which we shall be with him in glory, with our very bodies glorified, judging the world and judging angels. The king the sending of his spirit. Upon the church, the appointing of these offices, all this work that we've been considering in this section and all the work of the Spirit in perfecting us, sanctifying us, purifying us, it's all a part of the building up of the body in order that ultimately we all together, with the head complete, will be a perfect man and will have attained unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the work of the ministry. That's the whole purpose of preaching and all these offices. That's what it's meant to do. But let me say just a word about this other thing. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. What's this? What's this knowledge? Well, there are those who say that you should read it like this. Till we all come unto the unity of the faith, that is, of the knowledge of the Son of God. The faith that leads to the knowledge. But it can't be that. The apostle said, and. He didn't say, that is. You look it up. Till we all come in the, to the unity, attain unto the unity of the faith, and something additional, of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the most precious thing of all. Faith, of course, does lead to knowledge. And there is an element of knowledge in faith. It's very difficult to differentiate these things, but I think it's very vital that we should. You can have the faith of the Son of God without having this particular knowledge that the Apostle is speaking about. And you can be a Christian, I think, without much of this knowledge that he's speaking about. As I say, you can't have faith without having a certain knowledge. You can't believe the things I've been referring to without knowing them, in a sense. There is that element of knowledge, a kind of knowledge in faith, what can be called, if you like to use the technical term, the knowledge of cognition. But here, I think, we are not dealing with cognition, but with recognition. Here is something experimental. The apostle used a very strong word. It means... Full knowledge, epignosis, something over and above that other kind of intellectual knowledge and apprehension. Here is something deeper, something profounder. I say it is something experimental. What is this? Well, you see, this is again a part of the work of the ministry. And God forgive us that we so neglect it. And that we are not as aware of it as we ought to be. And it's an essential part of this building up of the body. Oh, we are to come to a knowledge of the Son of God. What is this? Well, I think it's what Paul meant in Philippians 3.10. And that's why I read that chapter just now. Here is a man who's absolutely clear about justification by faith. He is no longer interested in his own righteousness, which is after the law. He's come to see it's dung and refuse and worthless. He wants the righteousness and he's got the righteousness that is of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, but this is what he's still longing for that I may know him. Not only know the doctrine, not only have that kind of faith, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection. From the dead. Not that I have already attained. I haven't got this yet as I want it. I've got a lot. I thank God for it. But I'm trying to apprehend that for by which I have been apprehended. I want to know Him Himself. I'm no longer content with merely believing about Him. There is possible to the Christian this knowledge of the Son of God, this appropriation of His love to me personally, this true knowledge of Him Himself. Well, I needn't keep you. We've already been looking at it in the previous chapter in verses 19 and 20. He wants us to be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the knowledge, the knowledge of his personal love to you. Confidence in him and devotion to him in a personal sense. It means really knowing him directly and having communion and fellowship with him personally. This, my dear friends, is something that is possible to the Christian. It's a part of the process of our development. It means that we know what it is to receive of his fullness, You remember how John puts it, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, of the Father full of grace and truth, and of his fullness have we all received, and grace upon grace. Receiving something of his strength and power and of his grace, literally knowing that you're receiving it, knowing that you're in him as a branch is in the vine, receiving of his life. Yes, he said to the woman of Samaria, the water that I shall give you shall be in you a well of water, springing up into everlasting life, never hungering, never thirsting again, knowing his fullness and receiving it. In other words, living on him. Do you remember the words of our Lord himself in this connection? Let me read to you John 6, verses 56 and 57. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Do we know what it is to partake of Christ like that spiritually? Are we eating his flesh and his blood thus spiritually? Are we living by him? Are we living on him? Can we say with Paul to me to live is Christ? Now then, all this is a part of the knowing of the Son of God. We are meant to be filled by him. We are meant to mean what we say and what we sing when we joined together in saying, Fill thou my life, O Lord, my God, in every part with praise, to receive of the fullness of the head, and thus to be filled with him in every part and portion of our being, not only attain unto the faith of the Son of God, but also unto the knowledge of the Son of God. Do you know him, my friend? Is he real to you? He has said that he's going to manifest himself to those who keep his commandments, and that's it. When he manifests himself, we know him. It's no longer this faith, as it were. No, no, here is a knowledge. Here is a personal, intimate knowledge of him that is offered to his children, that is a part of the life of his people. Well, you notice, that these are the ways in which we are to be built up. The business of the church is not just to be telling us ever how we can be happy and how we can find a friend and so on or how to overcome sin. We are too subjective. We are too self-centered. The way to grow is to look at him, have this faith in him, have this knowledge of him. And as I close, I would emphasize the intimate relationship of these two to one another, the faith and the knowledge. Faith alone may puff us up, but this knowledge builds us up. There is a kind of knowledge, says Paul, that puffeth up, but love, charity, edifier. Oh yes, we must spend our time with the doctrines, We must attain unto this unity of the faith of the Son of God. The revelation is here. The Spirit is given. I must give myself with diligence and it is the business of pastors and teachers to inform their people concerning these things and build them up, yes. But you don't stop at that. All that is but meant to bring us to this knowledge of the Son of God that I might know him. That intimate, personal, subjective, experimental knowing of him, rejoicing in him, and receiving him as our life, and drawing of his fullness, and being filled with his holy presence. Very well, there it is. We go on with this until we shall all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. O blessed day Oh, blessed realization that every one of us shall be perfect and perfected in him and a part of his eternal blessedness and glory. Amen.